Hello and welcome to a special Papal Visit 2022 edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. This week I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, where I've been off and on for the last three months working with the planning committee for the Papal Visit to Canada. I would have loved to have been able to dedicate the last couple of weeks of episodes to this project. You can't imagine what it's like to plan a papal visit. And maybe in the fall we can actually do that. But there's no way I could have done it. Planning a papal visit is a lot of work. It's complex work that involves various protocols, government and state, church and Vatican, security, public safety, VIP protection, logistics, porta-potties, transportation, accommodations, media relations, volunteers, and of course, programs, which is my department. For this visit, we are responsible for eight events with the Holy Father in three different cities and involving the participation of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis, the indigenous people of this land. Over the last couple of weeks, you may have listened to some conversations that I've been having with various indigenous people, and so you may be familiar with some of the issues. Pope Francis arrives in Canada this Sunday, July 24th, and will be in the country until July 29th. The person overseeing the papal visit is Archbishop Richard Smith, the Archbishop of Edmonton. This week, we bring you a conversation with Archbishop Smith about the papal visit from his very own weekly podcast, Upfront with the Archbishop, hosted by Jenny Connolly. But before, here's an excerpt from that same podcast featuring Father Cristino Bouvet, a priest of the Diocese of Calgary who is in charge of all the liturgies for the papal visit. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Upfront with the Archbishop. My name is Jenny Conley, your host. Our goal at Upfront is to bridge the gap between the hierarchy and the faithful by discussing the beauty, truth, and challenges of our Catholic faith. Today, we're talking about the Catholic Church's relationship with Indigenous peoples in Canada, as well as the residential schools, and everything that has unfolded in regards to that matter since May of last year. And today is a special episode because not only am I having a conversation with Archbishop Richard Smith, but we're also having a conversation with Father Cristino Bouvet, who will be sharing from his unique perspective as someone who comes from an Indigenous heritage himself, while also being a Catholic priest. Father Cristino is the Vocations Director for the Diocese of Calgary, and he is also the National Liturgical Coordinator for the upcoming papal visit in July of this year. And Archbishop himself is also the General Coordinator of the papal visit, so they'll both be sharing from their perspective as individuals who are are leading in this upcoming papal visit, which is related to the issue of residential schools and the church's relationship with Indigenous peoples. My final note for context in this conversation is that in parts of this conversation, we refer to an Indigenous delegation that went to Rome in March of this year to meet with Pope Francis about the residential schools. And Archbishop Richard Smith attended that delegation in Rome in March of this year. So, Father Cristino, it's good to be here with you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, of course. And Archbishop, good to see you again. Hey, Jenny. How you doing? Very good. I would love to just start this conversation hearing a little bit about your personal uh, connections with this topic and your personal stories as they relate to this topic. Father Cristino, I'll start with you and then Archbishop will hear a little bit from you. Uh, so Father, to begin, what would be one or two examples of 
how Christianity manifested itself in the context of your parents and your grandparents' indigenous heritage. Because you yourself, you're indigenous, you're Catholic priest. It's a, it's a really interesting interaction of heritage. Yes, well, my grandmother, who we called Kokum, uh, the Cree word for grandmother, was quick to remind me at my priestly ordination, uh, which she attended, that we already had a tradition of ordained ministry in our family. Okay. And what she was referring to was the fact that she, who herself was never actually a Catholic, uh, her great-grandfather was, he has actually still thought to potentially have been the first indigenous man in Canada be, to have been ordained for the Methodist church uh, that was in Ontario at that time. He came out west as a Methodist missionary uh, to proclaim the gospel to other indigenous people. And so that was back in the mid-19th century, 1855. He was ordained in London, Ontario for the Methodist Church. And so she was reminding me that we had a long history already in our family of seeking to proclaim the gospel through official ministry. And so that was a, an obvious and humbling reminder right off the bat. But then her own personal example was one of a woman of deep prayer. She began every day in intercessory prayer for her vast family. She had 14 children. And wow. so she <laughs> had a lot to pray for. Yeah. And I don't ever remember a visit that did not begin and end with prayer. And so her own personal witness to prayer and the fact that this had been a part of our family's legacy for generations uh, certainly stood out to me. And when did the shift in your family when did it shift in your family towards Catholicism from a Methodist church to the Catholic church? That was because of my father having moved down to Medicine Hat where uh, as a young man, he had just finished school and he met a good Italian girl <laughs> who of course was uh, Catholic. Uh, but my father had gone on his own bit of a journey. He, uh, which was not uncommon in, in so many of these contexts, he suffered with and struggled with uh, substance abuse in his adolescence and early adulthood. And so as part of his healing process in going through Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, my mother, without even realizing it, they weren't married yet, she introduced my father to their parish priest. He went to Mass with them one time. And my dad ended up really opening up to him and he became a, a companion of his through his 12-step program uh, that led my father to desire to enter the Catholic Church. And so it was convenient because my Italian grandfather would not have wanted his daughter to marry a non-Catholic, but yeah. my dad freely chose that. And so our family uh, uniquely ended up heading in the direction of experiencing our Christian expression as Catholics. And what was your father's specific Indigenous heritage? So my grandmother, his mother, was born on the Satellite Cree Nation, and so predominantly Cree, though there is a lineage of Ojibwe from Ontario uh, through that Henry Bird signer, Reverend Henry Bird, who came out here. And my dad's dad was Métis. Okay, okay. So that's interesting. Your dad met this Catholic priest through 12 Steps, was there any hesitancy? What years would have this been in that he met this priest? This was in the uh, very beginning 1980s. 1980s. Down in Medicine Hat. Uh, an oblate priest. Okay. And so I think my dad, he was probably relatively ignorant of the potential for there to be tension or animosity between himself as a 
an indigenous person and this Catholic priest uh, because I think my grandmother uniquely had a, a perspective in the home where reconciliation and, and harmony in general was, I think, already something she was really working on and seeking after. And so I'm not surprised that my dad wouldn't have been on guard against a Catholic priest from the outset. Right. So 1980s, there was still residential schools open at that point because the last school closed in the late 1990s, That's correct? correct. Right. Okay. That's really interesting. So when you were growing up, you're, both your parents were Catholic. Did you find that your identity as someone of indigenous heritage and your Catholic faith, were these very separate entities as you were being formed as a young adult or was it just enmeshed? It was integrated. It was just part of who you were and the culture you were raised in. Well, they were distinct in that I didn't experience any uh, reason for there to be overlap. My indigenous heritage came from my non-Catholic side of the family. And so I ended up having the experience of when visiting the rest of our family uh, up at the farm where my grandmother lived uh, west of Red Deer, we would leave to go to Mass where everyone else would stay at the farm. So in a way, they, they seemed like they were separate, but not because that they were at odds with each other. I just didn't experience them uh, overlap. It wasn't until I was ordained, and in my first assignment was sent to a parish that had the care of the neighboring reserve, uh, the Tsutina Nation, where there is a Catholic parish. And so we served that parish as a mission. It wasn't until I began having regular contact with the First Nations people that lived there that I saw that now I had an opportunity to integrate part of who I was into my priestly ministry. And so that gave me an opportunity to turn to my Kokum in a new way and seek her counsel and her guidance as to how I could try and, I shouldn't say leverage, but to, to use to the best of my ability who I was at the service of the people that I had been sent to take care of pastorally. Mm -hmm. And did anyone on your uh, First Nations side of the family, did they have personal encounters with residential schools? Was that something part of their personal heritage at all? Oh, yes. My grandmother spent 12 years, 12 years. Uh, here in Edmonton at okay. what was called the Edmonton Indian Residential School for Girls, though it was operated by the United Church of Canada. Yeah. And did she speak frankly about that experience with you or was it something that was more just a, a private part of her history? Never throughout my childhood. It was a taboo topic. Right. No one really asked about it. I heard disparaging things said about them, but I didn't really understand what it meant. Mm -hmm. I certainly didn't know the relationship between the residential school system and the Catholic Church as the Catholic Church did operate the majority of the residential schools. Uh, but when I was ordained, and I then, by then, of course, knew of that connection, I started to broach the topic more with Kokum in private, just when it would be the two of us. I started going up to see her on my day off. I'd drive up on a Monday and just spend the day with her yeah. at the farm. And little by little, she started letting me see into what she experienced. Right. Okay. So you said when you initially got ordained, one of your first encounters of integrating your Indigenous heritage with the Catholic faith was a First Nations mission parish? What That's was right. it? What was it called again? Our Lady of Peace Our Lady at Sutina Nation. Okay. And where is that located? Just west of Calgary. You barely can tell that you've left the city limits before you drive onto the okay. reserve. And was there an integration of First Nations culture in the liturgy and how Catholicism was celebrated in that community at all? 
I wouldn't say so much in the liturgy as in the furnishings of the church, which I've always felt does more justice to what I think is trying to be sought in that enculturation, where the church itself, the space, feels like home, it feels comfortable, where different things are used to convey the same message that they would by other means in a different church. Because uh, the liturgy is the liturgy. It's the gift of God to the church itself. We have to be careful about not trying to uh, fashion it into something that means more to us because of who we are. And so I was personally careful about that. uh, And I didn't ever meet any resistance. I think more than anything, the people wanted to know that their priest loved them and was available to them. And I tried hard to make sure that they did know that. That's, that's really interesting. So you mentioned how this this interaction between, again, your indigenous heritage and Catholicism happened after you were, were ordained. So when you were in seminary and in those, yeah, when you were in seminary, do you remember there being any conversation about the church's part with residential schools or its connection with indigenous peoples in Canada? Was that a conversation that came up in class or even just in the cafeteria or with your bishop? Well, uh, to my shame, it wasn't until I was in the seminary that I really realized the connection. And now the okay. potential for the animosity to be that, that, we, that we do see and experience today. Uh, this was back in the early 2000s. Right. And as I learned more about the relationship, I actually became afraid. What does Kokum think about me being in the seminary? Because yeah. she was very supportive of me going, but... I became quite self-conscious and thought maybe she's just being nice because I'm her grandson, but actually she's hurt or bothered by this. And so uh, as I learned more, especially we we had a church history course Mm -hmm. that ran the whole year. And in the last little bit of that course, the last couple of classes, we were up to the present time and the history of the church in Canada was covered. And then I, I started to get, that nervous feeling that I think I better talk about this with her. And so in bringing it up, she reiterated how unequivocally supportive she was of me pursuing the priesthood. But then I think she may have saw, okay, maybe now everyone always called me Chris. So maybe she said, I think Chris is ready to, for me to bring him in a little bit more about this. And so uh, that's when she started opening up about that relationship and where she did have her own personal struggles with how to relate to institutional Christianity in light of uh, what she experienced. Yeah. Now you said earlier on that to your shame, you didn't really know about the tension between historically between uh, Catholicism perhaps or agents within Catholicism and the residential schools. Why, why the word shame? Well, I think what we are confronting right now as an entire country is a collective experience of people saying, I don't know why I didn't know about this. Mm. And when it's your own grandmother Mm. and the church you are seeking to be ordained to serve, it's, I guess I felt I was the last person with an excuse to not have known about that that relationship. And so it really instilled in me a sense that I needed to take this seriously and be committed to pursuing that path of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing so candidly about that, those aspects of your story. I, wa- I want to hear a little bit more about um, 
seminaries and and how education relates to the residential schools and that history. But before we uh, dive into that topic, Bishop, I would love to just ask you a few questions about your personal history and how that relates to the conversation around the residential schools. Um, My first question for you would be, at what point in your life did you first hear about the relationship between the church and residential schools? Was it when you were in your teens, seminary, priesthood, bishop? Oh, no, it was quite late for me. So um, when I was ordained a priest, it was for the Archdiocese of Halifax, where there had been a residential school, but that was certainly... Not on my radar. I don't think it was on many people's horizons, the particular history of, of that of that residential school. The first parish to which I was assigned as an associate did have as one of its missions an Indian reservation. And that was really my first exposure to indigenous culture, indigenous realities there. Um, and so that was, I would say, a gradual opening to get to know the people and their goodness and their beauty and their struggles and, and everything else. Um but it was probably not until I came out here as the archbishop uh, that that whole history of the residential schools and everything associated with it started to become especially uh, clear because it was just a few years after I arrived here as the archbishop that we had the, the whole Truth and Reconciliation Commission unfold here across across the country. And one of the major national events was actually here in Edmonton. That was uh, the last uh, of those national events, in fact. And so, as, as you may be aware, throughout all of that time, um, former student after former student after former student came forward uh, with, with, with very, very painful stories. And uh, they were frank and they were candid. And uh, to, to be exposed to that degree of, of pain and to see that the pain still lingered one can't ignore that. One, one has to say, okay, we have to explore this more deeply and find new ways in which we, with, in which we can walk with people. And the Archdiocese has been, over time in its various institutions, doing a number of things along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, it was just a year ago that reports started to come out from Kamloops that, that really, I think, gave a, a new awakening to the country that was... That was deeper, that was broader than even the TRC events had provided. It, it struck a chord, and it awakened, I think, certainly within me and with other bishops and people across the country. How, how, do, we, how do we really understand what went on? How do we understand, most importantly, how this has impacted and continues to impact Indigenous peoples and, and walk with them? The other, the other thing I'd want to stress at the outset is um, I've, I've been immensely edified, and I would say educated too, by my encounters with the Indigenous peoples. As I learn more about their cultures, more about their approach to life, I'm, I'm becoming more deeply convinced that they have so many lessons to teach us as a broader society. I think, for example, of, uh, first of all, not surprising to hear me see this, say this, I'm struck by their refusal to eclipse the Creator. Everything begins with prayer. And I, <laughs> I've, I've, I've been in meetings with indigenous peoples and I see an agenda in front of me and I, I just typically want to launch in. And more than once an indigenous elder had said, um, Archbishop, can we just, can we say a prayer? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah, we should, I guess we should. Um, but they're, they're, they're not shy about it. They're not uh, apologetic about it. And whatever the context, whether it's within 
uh, dialogue with with uh, religious people or even in the secular environment, they'll always acknowledge the Creator before all else. And we're living in a society that more and more pushes faith, even pushes God to the side, is perhaps not relevant, you know, to a to a, a pluralistic and increasingly secularized society. So I think we need to learn from that. So based on what you both shared, Father Cristino and Archbishop yourself, I mean, there's there's so much to be learned in, in the midst of all of this suffering and things that have come to light, the the interaction between these different heritages heritages of of indigenous culture and um, Catholicism. There's yeah, there's so much enrichment that can come about mm-hmm. in the midst of this suffering and under this reconciliation, this seeking for truth. Why, why do you think, because this is kind of part of both of your stories from what I'm hearing, you kind of, it came to light the relationship between First Nations and the Catholic Church and some of the tensions. It came to light pretty late on in your stories. You, Father Casino, when you were um, in seminary or ordained a priest, um, and then yourself when you were a bishop here in this diocese, which is, you know, many years into your journey as a Catholic priest. So, what would your thoughts, both of you, on why why was this an issue that was so discreet? Do you think it was something that was silenced, or do you think it's something that sometimes it takes time for things to rise to the surface, especially when there's suffering involved, right? And personal stories, right? People don't always want to come to the front and, and and take something that's so difficult and just talk about it in the news, for instance. Um, it can be a hard subject to broach. So in light of that, um, and in light of how much we can learn going forward, why do you think it took so long um, for, yeah, like personally, Father Cristino, why do you think you didn't hear about it? Well, I think uh, about this a lot. And I, you, you put it, your question in a bit of a, an either or way, and I would say that it's, it's a bit of both. Uh, was it discreet and just sort of silenced? Or was it uh, just simply that, just not really uh, talked about. And in, in seeing how my own Kokum came around to eventually opening up to me about this, one of the things I remember her sharing was that it didn't seem like it was worth it to bring up what you went through because who was there to complain to? what was going to be done about it. We also have to, I think, make a bit of a distinction, historically speaking, and in the context of broader history. Take my Kokum, for example. She was born in 1919. She went to residential school in 1926. She was born at the tail end of the First World War went through the economic collapse, the Great Depression, residential school, World War II. Her husband was deployed for three and a half years when she had two children at home overseas. The world at that time, life was just hard. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a kind of, uh, I don't know how to describe it, maybe... Not, I wouldn't even call it a strength, just sort of a resignation that this is just how things are. Mm-hmm. And so you don't reflect upon the immensity of your suffering while you're in it relentlessly. 
And so I think there was a period of time in our country that was marked by that, where people who bore the suffering of the experience, if what they experienced in residential school was that of suffering, that it was just another example of it. And so I, I think it took time for people to be able to start processing what they went through. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like when you're in survival mode mm-hmm. and then you go into shock later mm-hmm. when you finally can just relax and realize I'm okay now and then you start processing what just happened and it's overwhelming. That's where we're at right now, I think. Mm-hmm. Where people have been given the space, I hope in many cases they would say the, the security to begin processing what they went through or what their mother or grandmother, grandfather, father went through that caused them to parent them in a particular way or lack thereof. Right. Yeah. That they can start putting those pieces together. Yeah. So I'm reluctant to say that it was... Uh, silenced in the way that we would mean, you know, hidden and covered up and uh, with any malice, but it was silenced and stifled by life itself. Mm-hmm. And now it's coming to the surface, and so we have to collectively confront it mm-hmm. and address it together. And I think that that's, that's the key that we need to bring to this right now is how can we be doing this together And not like his grace was just saying, oh, well, that's your problem. What do you need to fix it? What are you asking for from us? But to just be with them Mm -hmm. and be with each other and and experience it together. Yeah, relationship itself heals many wounds. Just that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, Bishop, when you were, you said you you were a priest um, originally coming from a diocese in Halifax on the East Coast, right? Mm -hmm. And... I mean, through through the 80s and then early 90s, there still was residential schools. Was there, do you remember just in conversations with other priests or your bishop, was there even a consciousness that there was residential schools? Like were residential schools something that even if they weren't seen in a negative light in the, I mean, late 70s to early 90s, were they talked about at all? Like was it, oh, the church runs residential schools and it's, no, it's a that, fact? That was not in our consciousness at all, I, w- really? I would have to say. Okay, yeah. For sure. We knew, sort of knew it was there, but it was it was off. It wasn't part of the mainstream, something from the past. And and I think, uh, you know, ministers, priests, just like everybody else, can get caught up in the urgency of the present and what are the issues that are coming at us right now. And, and certainly, growing up, I had no interaction at all with any Indigenous peoples that just that just didn't come in, but uh, come, come within our our circle of, of relationships. I think that's probably the case with, with many, many people. And so when you just are focused on the friends that you have, the issues that you're dealing with, the family matters that are before you, that becomes your frame of reference. And some very often we just do not see beyond that. Right, yeah. and, and need wake-up calls that, that really help us to see beyond ourselves mm-hmm. and over the not last number of years here in the country we've we've had some of those and and uh, thanks be to god there does seem to be an awakening across the country to say these these are issues that that matter and it is part of our collective history as a country 
And as Father Christina was just saying, something that we do have to embrace together. One, um, to my mind, very wise indigenous leader in the country, not long ago said, look, in, in, you know, with sp- specific reference to the residential schools, he said, nobody living today created these. Nobody living today did any of the evil things that might have been per- uh, perpetrated within them. Um, and yet we've all inherited right now particular legacy and we see before us that there are still many people in our country that continue to suffer the trauma and so while there may not be any personal guilt right now associated with that there still is that collective responsibility that arises out of our solidarity as fellow human beings to say okay how are we going to address this as a country learn from it heal from it and move forward and i would also hope and pray that as we do grapple with it here in our country, it becomes um, almost a beacon of hope for others because the, the need for reconciliation exists everywhere in a, in a world that right now is currently so deeply fractured in family levels, uh, national levels, international levels. And uh, how are we going to deal with this here in our country? And then how can that be an example for others to do the same? That was an excerpt from Upfront with the Archbishop. Host Jenny Connolly spoke with Father Cristino Bouvet, Senior Lead of Liturgies for the 2022 Papal Visit to Canada, and with them was also Archbishop Richard Smith. If you want to listen to more episodes of Upfront with the Archbishop, look for it wherever you get your podcasts or visit caedm.ca. Here now is Jenny Connolly's conversation with Archbishop Richard Smith, Secretary General for the papal visit to Canada. My name is Jenny Conley, your host. And as per usual, I'm here with Archbishop Richard Smith. Hi, Hi. Archbishop. Hi, Jenny. Hi. Your life is so full right now. I can only imagine. How's it going with uh, coordinating this papal visit? It's coming up right away. It is coming up right away. Oh, it's yeah, it's been a little bit time consuming to to say the least. Uh, yeah, but it's been quite the adventure, I have to say, over the last few months. And thanks be to God, we've been able to send, assemble a wonderful, wonderful team of people, totally dedicated to this and bringing a wide range of expertise uh, to make sure that we can make this happen in the way that it needs to happen. So it's been quite an adventure. Yeah, I was. I, I work for another news company and I was just this morning talking to Father Cristino Bavet mm-hmm. and uh, he's the liturgical coordinator for the papal visit. And it's so beautiful to see the detail and intentionality behind what's being created for this papal visit, despite the fact that it's kind of, in terms of papal visits, it's kind of last minute and there's a lot of logistical craziness, but it's still so thoughtful. So that we're doing our best with it. And and you know what's behind this short timeline is the determination of Pope Francis himself. You know, he's yeah. uh, over the last uh, year or so, obviously he's been more acutely aware, been made more acutely aware of the uh, issues that are before us in the re- in relationships with the indigenous peoples and the difficulties that that they endure in in many many ways. And of course, when he hears these things, he he doesn't like to waste time in response. He wants to be yep. with people, draw near. And we saw that actually from the outset of his papacy when there was all the issue, still is, sadly, the issue of the, the migrants coming across the Mediterranean Sea and drowning and so on. And and those that did make it across had as their landing point the island of Lampedusa, just off the coast of Italy. 
And so as he became aware of this, he says, I want to go. And I want to be with those people. I want to be with, welcome some of these people. And, and he said to his handlers, I want it to be next week. No, a people, right? People visit. And they scrambled and they made it happen. And so here in this case, he has said, let's not waste time with this. And so yeah. what it has meant for us is that a papal visit, which normally takes 18 months, two years to prepare for well, has really had to come together in four or five months. So that obviously has had some significant challenges. But as I brought that to people, as we assembled the team, they said, okay, it's a challenge, but let's get it done. Let's make this happen. We can do it. And it has proven to be the case. Yeah, Pope Francis definitely seems, um, throughout his papacy, he's been a, a people-first uh, pope. Much. And it, it's good to see a pope, in a sense, using the power that he does have in order to connect with people as, as soon as possible. Because, yeah, you're right. I think if, if, if things get held off for too long for the sake of logistics or politics, then sometimes that, that humanizing aspect of it gets lost because it's the time has passed, right? So Yeah, and the Pope, too, in this particular case, he realizes, and he said it before publicly, this is not just a matter of him. He's not the one and only person that can step in and resolve this, as it were. Nobody has that has that illusion. He's He has understood that this is a long journey that the people of Canada are on, and in this more immediate context, the, the church in Canada, together with Indigenous peoples, and from the outset, he said, well, how can I help? How can I step in and be part of the journey with you? And that's what is behind this uh, strong determination of the Holy Father to be with us here in Canada. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you've mentioned how you're talking to different reporters. There's there's international news. Great interest from, in this. Yeah, great interest. Great interest. So mm-hmm. it's attracting a lot of um, in-depth journalism for sure in terms of the Pope coming, not only because it's a sensational event, the Pope is a big deal to mm-hmm. many people, but also because of the significance of the residential schools and the Pope's apology. What has been your experience thus far, especially with secular media? Are Is there is there a reverence for the Pope? Is it, is it a mixture of, a, of aggression and skepticism, but also also like a hope and a, and a joy that the Pope is coming? What's your experience with the media right now? Um, I think we all know that there can be some pockets of hostility from some sources in the media, but I'm finding generally it's a, it's, it's a genuine interest. Um, they understand the significance of the Pope coming anywhere in the world, of course, and for the Pope to be coming here to Canada is remarkable also. At the same time, there's a recognition that this is a papal visit different from just about any other people visit. It is so targeted on one particular group of people and one particular issue. I, I expect that there will be other issues that get touched upon in the course of the people visit. It's, it's just the nature of things. But it's clear that this is the priority for the Pope, and that's attracting a lot of attention. And I would say respectful, certainly in my experience, respectful questioning, really wanting to understand what this is all about, uh, there can be, by time, some pointed questions, and, the, and that's fair. That's part of the journalism industry. Um, but no, I'm, I'm finding, you know, help us understand more. Help us understand what the hopes and the expectations are. How does this fit within the, the overall long-term journey of healing and reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I was I was at a at a press conference at Sacred Heart Church of the First Peoples, which is here in Edmonton. It's the it's the official First Nations church in Canada, I believe. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. 
yeah, and it was interesting to seeing the, the secular media asking, yes, very pointed questions, but there was a, a general sense of, 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 of reverence, I would say, even in the midst of the pointed questions. So it's interesting to see how that, that tone is prevailing. Well, I think too, there's, there's a sense that, you know, this will be uh, one of the more historic moments in the history of our country. Understanding well how we can reconcile with the first peoples of this land, after all, how we can learn to walk with them, how we can learn to learn from them, I think is important. So that seems to be a general sense pervading all that is that is happening here. This is truly going to be a very historic, very important, and very hope-filled, I pray, moment in the history of our country. Absolutely. And you've referenced how, of course, I mean, I think anyone who's following the development of this papal visit knows that this papal visit is targeted towards um, a, a very specific community within uh, Canada, uh, Indigenous peoples, especially those who have had their legacy attached to the residential schools. So what words of wisdom would you have for someone who is outside of the Indigenous community? Because there's so many Catholics in Canada, um, and the Pope coming to Canada is a big deal for all Catholics, regardless of whether they're Indigenous. So how can somebody who is not from an Indigenous background connect with this visit and engage with it? You know what? I think the most important thing, the most important way for people to connect with this particular visit is to connect with themselves. And what I mean is this. The issue that is obviously being highlighted in, in this whole uh, papal visit is that of healing and reconciliation. And yes, this visit is tar- is targeted in the sense that the Pope really wants to be first and foremost with the indigenous peoples of our country. But he, the need for healing and the need for reconciliation touches everybody. I have my own need for healing. Uh, you do, our communities do. We know that our world does. And people are searching, searching to find ways, searching to see that it's possible to reconcile within myself, with my families, with with fellow citizens, with other nations in the world. The need for this is everywhere and in every context. That's what I mean by getting in touch first, connecting first with myself and my environment and the fact that healing and reconciliation impacts everybody. So connect with that and then connect with the visit and pay very, very close attention to what unfolds and how the Holy Father speaks and what he says because when he touches this issue, he's touching something that is actually deeply personal to everybody. And what is most deeply personal is most universal. So this is something that I think can reverberate to all of us. And the last thing that I'd want is for people to think that, okay, this is an issue that just deals with this particular group or this particular relationship, and I might want to look at it as merely a point of interest. No, no, no. This is something that truly has the opportunity to impact each of us in a significant way. So it's important to engage, important to follow, and important to pay very, very close attention to the message of the Pope. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting too, because from the perspective of Catholic theology, as baptized members of the church, we're all part of the body of Christ. So in a sense, mm-hmm. healing for one, healing for one person within the body of Christ or healing for an entire group within the body of Christ is healing for all of us. So it's not, it might seem like it's, the healing of indigenous communities is just for them. But in a sense, when one of one in one, one of the members of the body heals, we're all impacted and brought into that healing. 
Yeah, and I, I, I do think it's important for us to stay in touch with our own individual or familial needs for healing. When I, when I talk to Indigenous peoples, very often they'll say, look, you know, we're, we're resilient. We don't need you to come in and heal us. Right. What we do need is for you to validate our experience. What we as a broader community in validating their experience also need to be prepared to validate our own and not be running from the truth of ourselves or the truth of our own histories and stories, but be willing to face that truthfully and honestly, to be reconciled with myself in order then to be reconciled with others. So this this need for healing, it it really spans the whole spectrum of our society. And, and this kind of connects to what we've been talking about here, but to play devil's advocate a bit, uh, what would you say to someone who's, who's a little bit skeptical that the papal visit is so specifically focused on one group? Because again, the Pope doesn't come around very often and there's, there's millions of Catholics in Canada who don't necessarily share the indigenous experience. So to play devil's advocate, what would you say to someone who's feeling maybe unseen or skeptical as to why this is so targeted? Well, we already know that the Pope is for everybody. He's the head of the church. And it doesn't always mean that whenever he goes everywhere, he has to address everyone or everything. The very fact that the Pope, as the head of the Catholic Church, is coming to our country already is something that does touch the hearts and the minds of of Catholic people. He is our universal shepherd, and we're very, very happy and blessed to have him in our midst, and we want to do all that we can to to welcome him as our as our chief shepherd. Uh, so, in terms of engagement, um, practical engagement in this papal mm-hmm. visit, because there's a lot of different events across Canada, and especially here in this Edmonton diocese, particularly the massive Commonwealth Stadium Mass. There's going to ideally there's going to be somewhere upwards of sixty thousand people. Yeah, I think that's what they expect. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of there's a lot of events that will be occurring in the diocese during the papal visit. But what are one or two practical ways that you would encourage people within the Edmonton diocese to engage with this papal visit once it commences? Well I think of a number of things, but practically speaking, uh, three come to mind. First is prayer. Please pray. Already, I know there's a wonderful, wonderful amount of prayer that's being lifted up for this visit. People have an instinctive sense of just how important this is. We may not always be able to articulate the significance of it, but intuitively there is that appreciation. And I'm picking that up in the number of people that continually say, praying for you, Archbishop, praying for this event, Archbishop. And then I hear other stories of, people that are gathering to prayer and including it in their communal prayer, family prayer, whatever. So this is, there's a beautiful appreciation of just how much this can be a wonderful occasion of healing grace. So that a lot of support for prayer. So please pray for this constantly. Um, Many volunteer opportunities. uh, So at the Papal Visit website, papalvisit.ca, I think there's an opportunity there to hit a button and indicate that you'd like to volunteer and then somebody can follow up with you on that. And the third one I'd, I'd want to emphasize, um, sounds <laughs> sounds like I might be taking advantage of this podcast, and maybe that's because well, I am. You it's, know. <laughs> it's your podcast, your name, <laughs> up front with the Archbishop. I don't know if it's well, taking let, advantage. Let, let, <laughs> let, no, but let me be up front then and, and invite people to donate. All right. The, uh, Clever. Uh, I, well. <laughs> Clever. <laughs> the, um, the, the, uh, the Pope is expensive, I've, I've learned, right? So... <laughs> Um, the complexity of this is just 
enormous. Now, the Pope is going just to a few limited sites geographically because of his mobility limitations, which adds to the need for us to make sure that this will have national, in fact, international impact. And so the technology that we need to do for production, for staging, for broadcasting, all, all these things, it's, uh, it's quite something. Now, I would want to emphasize that uh, within that complexity, we're trying to keep things as simple as possible and as frugal as possible in keeping with the spirit of Pope Francis, first of all, and the spirit of this event. But nevertheless, things, nevertheless, things take money. So, um, yes, if people want to engage and donate, and I would encourage as generously as your means would allow, uh, we could certainly use uh, every cent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just looking over at our producer. We'll definitely we'll put a link to donate in the in the show notes. Oh, thank for the you very episode. much. Very good. Yeah, very, very absolutely. Good. So thanks to everybody that's able to to help us out. Yeah, and it's interesting that you brought that up. How Pope Francis? I was thinking about that because, of course, this is understandably an expensive endeavor, um, especially in terms of security and things like that. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so, but also there's that spirit of Pope Francis, which has always been a focus on simplicity and and. Um, connecting with with those who are impoverished. So, yeah, I can I can see how it's uh, there's balancing that, but also understanding that there's just that very practical expense. Well, the Pope is the Pope, yeah. and he's also head of state, and that comes with a whole number of various levels of complexity that that we just have to honor. It's all part of the way that we as Catholics welcome our Holy Father. Yeah, it's my understanding that. Because not only is Pope Francis the head of the Catholic Church, but he's also the head of the Vatican State, exactly. that there's kind of double protocols with that, as if, so. like, if it was the president, but also the head of a religion. So it's kind of a double header in that sense, um, in terms of everything that needs to go on, in terms of security and all of the other protocols that come with someone of that stature. It's, it's very, very complex. And so we've been, we've been having our engagement, obviously, with Indigenous partners as this goes along, but obviously Vatican, um, the Holy See, their own protocol office, the Secretary of State, and things that need to be put in place, expectations that need to be met with the federal government, its Office of Protocol and its Office of Indigenous Relations, and, and so on. It's, it's uh, many, many stakeholders in this. Yet all of all of whom really see how significant this is right now for our country and are willing to to collaborate and work together to make it happen. The the, the spirit of collaboration and cooperation in all of this has really been uh, very edifying to me. I've been very very encouraged by it all. Yeah, no kidding. There must be a really close interaction, of course, with government and church for this specific event yep. and government at all levels. And and I'd have to say. Uh, seated here in Edmonton, that the city of Edmonton, the province of Alberta, have just been wonderful. The 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 readiness to step up to the plate to make things happen with very very significant in kind contributions to make sure that there's spaces available like Commonwealth Stadium for the mass, or that we have adequate infrastructure uh, in terms of roads to be moving thousands and thousands of people in remote areas that would not normally have sufficient infrastructure to support those numbers in a very, very limited space of time. And, and as we have reached out to the various levels of government, they've just said, how can we help? What can we do? This is really, really important for us, and we're there for you. And they, it really has been a wonderful collaboration. Mm-hmm. And even down to the the uh, the construction workers, the laborers that are working around the clock to get a lot of projects done that 
have to be done on this very specific and expedited timeline. I was just outside of the diocese. There's big transformations going on, different churches, a lot of the different sites that I visited where the Pope will be visiting, they're, they're, entire, they're, they're being transformed to uh, represent the significance of the event and host the Pope, and there are people working day Lots and night. of excitement. Lots yeah. of excitement. And yes, people are working long hours. Yeah. And, and this is something that needs to be acknowledged. To the people yeah. that I have on my team, my, oh my, late into the night to make sure that things happen, things don't fall behind because of the because of the type time, tight timeline. And yet everybody just has this instinctive sense that we are now part of history, a very important moment in history. And we can't even foresee what the long-term positive consequences of this are going to be. But we know that by God's grace, they will be long-term, very, very wonderful, fruitful outcomes from this. And just to have the sense that by God's providence, we are here at this time working on this project is uh, it, it's quite a quite a quite a sense of blessing, and that's that's giving rise to wonderful excitement in the people that I'm talking to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes me think of of Esther in the Bible, the that that classic saying, "For such a time as this." Mm-hmm. And it is such a time. So actually, our, our producer, Matthew Bodnarik, who is always here when we're recording, he has a couple of questions for the Archbishop for, regarding the papal visit. So I'm going to hand the mic over to Matthew. And as you do, I'll just remind Matthew that you are an employee of this archdiocese, <laughs> so we'll be very, very... That's you'll right. be cough, you'll be careful with your questions, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, don't worry. We've never asked you pointed questions before. Never. No, that's not like you guys. No. <laughs> One of the questions uh, that I had follows from what you were saying about people working long hours. Now, I've witnessed firsthand that you have been working very long hours. So I'm curious just personally from your pers- or from your end, how are you balancing that workload? Well, thank you for the question. Um, you know, I'm probably not balancing the workload. This this is something that we we all recognize. Everybody that's involved in this realizes that this does involve a lot of time and effort. And because of what is at stake here and what is it happening here, we're willing to give the time. So, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> I would. I wouldn't pretend that I've found what sometimes people like to call that work-life balance. But I will. I'll regain it once this once this is finished. Yes, you'll need a long vacation after. And once the Pope flies back to Rome, you'll. <laughs> we might not see you for a few weeks. Well, but. I'm looking forward to a bit of a rest. I admit. Sure. The other question I had was. You will be necessarily, I'm assuming, because you're the general coordinator of the papal visit, you will be with the Pope in some, in some sense, in some, right? Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. You'll, I don't know, rubbing elbows with him, but uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll be with him. Have you thought about what you'll say to him, what you'll, if you'll have any questions for him? I mean, you've, you have met him before, but this have, might yeah. be a little bit more of an intimate setting. I have no idea what to expect, really. I'm told that, yes, I'll be part of the papal entourage for the time that he's here in the country. And and um, I, I expect, you know, given that I'm the general coordinator, he or his officials might have some questions about, okay, what's happening next? What's this all about? And so on and so forth. So I tend to think the conversations that I would have, um, limited though I expect that they will be, would be along those lines. One of the things that... I think we all understand is that the Pope, even when he travels, he's still in charge of the church. And so there will be many issues that continue to come before him. I'm sure will be brought to his attention by the officials that are traveling with him. Um, so I don't know if he'd ha- he'll have a whole lot of time to be talking about the weather, as it were. Mm-hmm. But I'll just, I'll be there as 
they'll move me in a note, I'm sure, as, as needed. And uh, if he's got any questions that I can respond to, I'll be glad to do that. To let the audience know, we are planning to do a debrief episode after the papal visit. So okay. I'll be curious to hear if you have any stories. I do remember Archbishop um, Joseph McNeil telling a story about the last papal visit mm-hmm. to Edmonton um, with uh, St. John Paul II. And he, <laughs> when he was, uh, I don't know if he was staying with the Pope, but he ended up having breakfast with uh, John Paul II. Mm. And uh, he talked about having uh, the, the sisters that were serving them breakfast brought over uh special cake cornflakes for breakfast. Okay. <laughs> and he thought it was funny that he was, he was sitting at this small kitchen table eating cornflakes with the Pope. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll be curious to see if you have any experience like that. Well, you know, I'm sure there'll be many stories. Uh, how many of them can be shared on a podcast? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Remains to be seen. <laughs> we fully expect to hear about all of the, the cornflakes or the burritos <laughs> or the, the Tim Hortons ice cap that you sip with the Pope. <laughs> Okay, so in terms of engagement, asking the diocese, anyone in the diocese to pray for this papal visit, to volunteer if they have the capacity to do so, and to donate. And again, there'll be links in the show notes, both for volunteers and for the ability to donate to this this endeavor. Great. Yeah. Um, In terms of prayer, I guess we can just kind of close with that. What's a, a specific intention that people can offer their rosaries up or if they're having a family prayer time, uh, a specific intention that they can offer for you and for this papal visit. Let's pray for the ho- health of the Holy Father, first of all. Um, he's making an extraordinary effort to, to come and to be with us. Everybody recognizes that. And so let's pray that his, that his health remains strong and that, and that continue to be strong so that he can obviously carry on in, in shepherding the church. And this is an extremely important issue to us and to him, and our country is important to us and to him, but he's the universal shepherd and he needs the strength and the wisdom and the grace of the Holy Spirit to continue to be the universal shepherd that God has, has called him to be. So let's pray for that. And pray too, you've probably heard me use this phrase a number of times, but pray that the shadow of St. Peter will fall upon our country. That goes back to Acts 5. And St. Peter, as he's walking around post-resurrection, announcing the gospel, people were bringing to him the sick and those in need of healing, and even if they could not touch him or get near to him, if if his shadow passed over them, there was a transformation, there was a healing. And the Pope is the successor of St. Peter. We can't forget that, the successor of St. Peter. And so he brings with him that shadow wherever he goes. So let's pray that that, that shadow of, the, of, of uh, our chief shepherd, of our first Pope, St. Peter, will fall upon all who need Healing. Those in our indigenous communities, those within the Catholic communities, or those anywhere in our country that are looking for some kind of um, transformation in their lives that's going to lead to real wholesome and, and, and a lasting peace. Mm, amen. Yes, I will, I, will, I will add that to my intentions today. Yeah, that's beautiful, the, the shadow of St. Peter. Yeah. Great. Well, Archbishop, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And we are praying for you, everyone on Thank the podcast you. team. Don't because, stop. <laughs> yeah, we are. I know it's, it's a heavy mantle that you're carrying doing this coordination. And I know that so many people are so grateful for the diligence that you're offering to this sure. endeavor. So thank yeah. you. Sure. Thank you. That was an excerpt from Upfront with the Archbishop, hosted by Jenny Connolly. She spoke with Archbishop Richard Smith of Edmonton, Secretary General of the Papal Visit to Canada. 
Upfront with the Archbishop is a weekly podcast that seeks to bridge the gap between the hierarchy and the faithful by discussing the beauty, truth, and challenges of our Catholic faith. You can listen to it weekly at caedm.ca, that's the Edmonton Archdiocesan website, or you can also get it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you to producer Matthew Bednarik of the Archdiocese of Edmonton, and of course, thank you to Archbishop Richard Smith for sharing the program with us this week. To listen to other Salt and Light Hour episodes, visit us at slmedia.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Pope Francis will be in Canada from July 24th to the 29th. You can watch all the events on Salt and Light TV or online at Salt and Light Plus, slmedia.org. You can also learn about all Indigenous issues at that same website, slmedia.org. I'm Deacon Pedro. Thank you for listening to this special papal visit edition of the Salt and Light Hour.